0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 407 of the Juice Box podcast. On today's show, Erica Forsythe is here. She has a masters in social work and she specializes in diabetes. She's going to tell you more about it in a second. But for right now, please remember that nothing you hear on the Juice Box Podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Please always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin.
1: Hi, my name is Erica Forsyth. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and type one for over 30 years.
0: Okay, so I'm already that quickly my I don't think I have ADHD but when you said that I was like oh we should just talk about being married that would be interesting <laughs> i to find out why is it so hard to be married and why do people argue about oh but never mind that's not what we're gonna do This show is sponsored today by the glucagon that my daughter carries, Gvoke hypopen Find out more at gvokeglucagon.com forward slash juicebox. This episode is also sponsored by the Omnipod tubeless insulin pump. And you can get a free, no obligation demo of the Omnipod sent directly to you today by going to myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox. Try it on, wear it. And see what you think before you commit. Don't forget to check out Touched by Type 1. They're at touchedbytype1.org. It is my absolute favorite diabetes organization. Check them out. They're also on Instagram
1: and Facebook.
0: Touchedbytype1.org. When were you diagnosed?
1: I was diagnosed at age 12 in the summer at summer camp.
0: Summer camp. Not the Mm -hmm. best memory or not a bad memory?
1: Um, it was a pretty traumatic memory and diagnosis story. You know, everyone has their own diagnosis story. Um, it was over kind of a span of a couple months. It was a three week long summer camp and I was diagnosed the night, the last night of the three week summer camp.
0: Oh, and then they shipped you home lifeless. Um,
1: They, I don't remember this, but they put me, I was in sixth grade. They put me in a ambulance and I was on my way to. A diabetic coma, ketoacidosis. And wow. so then I, my parents met me at the ER at some point that night. I don't, It's all kind of a blur. Yeah.
0: So, so you were there for three weeks. Do you think this was happening to you the entirety of those three weeks?
1: You know, I think they, I was um, played in a volleyball camp in the beginning of the summer. And, um, you know, to do that, I had to have a Uh, you know, check in a physical and also before going away for the summer camp. And definitely I was experiencing symptoms, but like many families, we did not know to look for, you know, frequent thirst, frequent urination and extreme weight loss. Um, They just thought I was growing and it was hot and I was playing lots of volleyball. And then I went off to summer camp and you know, there was a flu going through the camp, and I fainted. So they thought it was that they thought it maybe was, I was going through puberty, um, you know, definitely was experiencing extreme fatigue, which was really abnormal because I was an athlete. Um, so, you know, when you're not really looking for type one, the symptoms aren't as obvious, but then when you look back and you can check off, you know, all of those symptoms, like, Oh my gosh, we should have known. Um, Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess especially when you're under the um, the care of horny eighteen year old camp counselors too, they're probably just like, "She's got the flu, get her in a bed." Oh, yes,
1: yeah. <laughs> yes, and you know, it was interesting. Finally, it was the last day of camp, and as in most camps, you know, everyone they they're getting ready for the the banquet, and so all the girls are you know running around in our room or cabin, and I'm kind of going in and out of consciousness, and they're 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 prepping, they're getting dressed, they're getting their makeup on. And I guess finally, my symptoms um, were made known to a male camp counselor who happened to have type one. And so I, I remember him coming into our room, which was, you know, a male in the, in the girls' cabin was was like you scandalous, know, scary, yeah, yeah. or just <laughs> not normal. And he took my blood sugar and it read high. And at the time, that was like I think over six hundred. Um, and so I think it was really kind of a saving grace that he heard my symptoms he was there he knew to take my blood sugar and you know the rest is history yeah
0: well that is lucky honestly mm-hmm. for you Ooh. all right well I've never been to camp but you just <laughs> you just made it sound not very good
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh I love the camp you know what I and I went it took me a couple years but I went back in high school to kind of redeem my experience because it was a special it's a special place
0: that's cool well, that's good yeah well okay so how long ago was this?
1: This was 30 years ago. Wow. Mm -hmm. Erica,
0: I'm going to do some quick math and say that was 1990.
1: That was. That was the summer of 1990. That was good math.
0: Thank you. I'm very impressed at my ability to subtract three, <laughs> to subtract three from two. No, it's a negative one, then knock 10 years off of 2000. The way I came up with it really is brilliant. I don't want to bore anybody with it, but uh, <laughs> i I'm very impressed with what I learned in seventh grade yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and was able to retain. Okay. So you're, you're on the show today. You were, you were actually, um, suggested to me by someone else. Am I right about that?
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh,
0: so, tell me what you do professionally.
1: Professionally, I am, as I said, an, a marriage and family therapist, but I specialize in working with people with diabetes and their families, um, their caregivers. Um, as we know, it you know it takes a village, and it affects not only the person with diabetes, but everyone um, around him or her. And yeah. so, I am. Um, I love my job and I love that I get to walk alongside people, you know, from newly diagnosed to, uh, you know, people living with it for 10, 15, 20, 30 plus years who are maybe experiencing some, you know, distress or burnout or um, other issues that may or may not be re- related to diabetes, but oftentimes it, it can go back to that
0: why don't we start with burning out? And mm-hmm. th- I'd, I'd love to know. So I'm assuming you see people who've been with diabetes for all l- lengths of time. Um, and then how do you think of burnout? Like beyond, you know, just the word that gets kind of thrown around in, in you know, in social circles online, like what, what is burnout to you?
1: Yeah, so I, I think well, a lot of people really work on clarifying that Diabetes distress leads to burnout, and I think you know it. If you're experiencing distress um, over, and it, maybe it comes and goes, but when you're actually experiencing burnout, people will describe it as you know hitting a wall, or maybe it's you feel like you just don't have the you know capacity to take care of yourself, manage your your diabetes. Maybe you want to skip a dose. Maybe you just want to eat whatever and not think about, you know, carb counting or, or think about what, where is my blood sugar now? What am I doing? You know, all the things that we have to think about when we're about to do something or eat something or exercise. Um, and so burnout is, I just don't want to think about it. I I'm, I'm done. I want to take a break and you might, you're probably not even doing that consciously. Um, and I think, you know, burnout can be become very risky and scary when you're experiencing that over prolonged period of time.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so you're saying that there's like stressors that lead to the the give up, like the hand throwing up or even yes. the the, uh, the subconscious hand throwing up of just like, I'm going to get a bag of potato chips and sit on the sofa now. And this is the extent of my nutrition. Like I've just <laughs> given up on everything for reasons that can be external and unseen. Is that possible? Like so the way I to give you a little look into my head, the one of the reasons I make this podcast is because that I think that managing type one diabetes is arduous. And that if you're mired down constantly in the math and the worry and things are always going wrong and your meals spike and you're high all the time and you don't know why and then you drop low and you're con- you know you're concerned about being low and then you over treat and you bounce up. This is uh-huh. a- an untenable way to live, and so I'm a big proponent of learning quickly how to manage the insulin so that you don't sort of start this journey of, of wherever you know, it leads to that ends up with many people just being like, I can't do this, or this thing beats me all the time, or it's unknowable, Mm -hmm. or whatever it ends up feeling like to different people. So it it could be simple, right? Like, it could be like, one day, I just don't feel like giving myself a shot. And the next day, I don't know how many carbs are in this. And then it gets high, and I'll just leave it high and see if it comes down. And then these things build and build and build on themselves. Is that true?
1: Yes, I would say that's, that is an accurate description in addition to maybe other, um, external kind of stressors or, you know, feeling like you're, you're powerless, um, or maybe you have a constant fear of, of having hypoglycemia Mm -hmm. or you're really, you know, particularly in the teenage years, this is, can be quite normal of feeling like you want to hide your diabetes from other people, um or feeling like your doctor just doesn't understand what it's like. So and these are that those are maybe at play. And in addition to, you know what, I just don't want to, I don't want to have to think about what my blood sugar is and I want to eat five donuts this morning. Mm. Um, and that can all snowball. Yes. Yeah.
0: And then before you know it, you're so mired down in it that you don't know how you got there and there's no way to know how to get out anymore.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and, and you kind of, you know, when you're, you're sick all the time, you kind of just get used to feeling sick. And then maybe one day you're not sick. You're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know how good that feels to not be sick. Yeah. I think you can become kind of used to maybe not feeling well because of your sugars are so high. And then um, emotionally and mentally you're, you're down and out and you, that just becomes your new normal. Right. Um, yeah, pain, and pain, And that's, you know, where I want to enter in. Yes. Yeah.
0: Pain, pain starts that way. Um, uh-huh. it, it's. Uh, I had a motorcycle accident. When I was like twenty, and I didn't have any mm. like health insurance. So when I was lucky enough to stand up, they were like, "You're going to the hospital." And I was like, "I don't have insurance. You're not taking me to the hospital. I'm poor. I know where that leads to." So I just <laughs> went home, and my shoulder healed naturally, which obviously, in hindsight, wasn't a great decision. Uh, and over the next, you know, twenty years, it actually worked fine. But it turned out that you know the weird healing process besides the lump that's on my shoulder that you can feel that doesn't belong there. <laughs> it turned out that there was, you know, a calcification that kept building and building and building. And one day it impinged a, um, my, uh, my gosh, it's such a simple concept. Everybody gets their shoulder repaired. That thing in their shoulder is called anybody, uh,
1: the rotator. Thank cuff. you,
0: Erica. It impinged <laughs> the rotator cuff and it just snapped. Right. But it happened super slowly and mm-hmm. it hurt a little you got used to it. it hurt a little more you got used to it you couldn't lift your arm up as high you got used to it it's amazing how adaptive we can be y- you know and then i'll never forget the biggest relief i had in in 4 years because it took 20 years for me to start noticing the problem and 4 years for it to explode mm-hmm. but i was trying to have a catch with my son one day thinking i was pushing through this you know Stiffness is how I imagined it in my mm-hmm. addled mind, you know. And then suddenly I said to him, I'm like, oh my God, I worked through it. It's, It feels great. And for the next 20 minutes, it was perfect until I realized that my rotator cuff had the, the, the tendon had snapped. Oh gosh. Right. And just the snapping of it alleviated my pain for a while mm-hmm. until a new pain showed up. I think that's exactly what you're talking about is that it, you know, you start off with a, you know, not having diabetes your blood sugar's in the 80s all the time, then suddenly it's not anymore. And now, you know, you're in the 90s, the 100s, you're honeymooning, and then suddenly it's Mm -hmm. 120 and 130 and 150. Before you know it, you feel completely normal at 200. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: you're not. You just don't realize it. So
1: Yes, no, that's a a great analogy, and I'm sorry that happened. Nah, please,
0: (laughs) what am I going to do? You know, the day I figured it out, I couldn't hold a water bottle in my right hand. Oh, my gosh. I was like, I am going to move this to my left hand, and call a doctor. So, <laughs> um, but smart but, move. Oh yeah, please. Smart move would have been when I was twenty years old, going a little bit in debt and having my shoulder fixed. <laughs> but I was really broke back then, Erica, and anything over forty-five dollars seemed like a million. So I was oh a, a yes stuck, you know. Um, but but so what do people like, like? Given that you don't see it happening to you, I mean that's why my argument is you know just stop it from happening, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, but, you know, shy of that being able to be your reality, say you don't find a podcast that helps you manage your insulin. How do I like, what are my signs? If I, because I'm assuming Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that a loved one sees this, right?
1: Right. Yes. I mean, I, I know, you know, I speak a lot from, you know, the, the, the person who's living with diabetes can experience the, you know, distress and burnout, but obviously the caregiver, like yourself can too, because it's, it's constant. Um, I think some of, you know, the, the obvious signs would be, you know, not doing some of the things that you used to do. Like, for example, maybe your check it used to check frequently, and then now it's becoming less frequent. Um, or you're just maybe looking for signs that something might not be, that something is bothering you that you might not be feeling as, um, is hopeful in in life in general, mm-hmm. um, but also with with your diabetes care. You might be experiencing, you know, this is what a lot of um, younger my younger clients will talk about or experience. Just the guilt and shame around the number, um, because there is such a hyper focus on the numbers. You know, when I was um, first diagnosed, I went to um, a large children's hospital, and whenever I they would take your A one C right there it was just like from a finger stick mm-hmm. and then it would it would compute and then they would apply your a1c to a letter grade oh so this is this is in the you know the 90s sure. early 90s and so if you were in the right zone it was an a if you were you know 8 to 10 you were a b or in higher i mean there were times where i remember i had like a d <laughs> yeah. um, and so talk about you know they they're trying to encourage you to have a better grade but that certainly started the started the course for me in having some shame-based thinking around my numbers um and i i hear a lot of clients talk about you know i just i don't want to check because i know it's going to be 350 so of course you don't then you you're connecting that number to who you are as a person how you're doing with your diabetes management and so of course you don't want to check it or or look at your cgm yeah. um
0: I'm fixated so that, now on who the moron spiral. is mm-hmm. who the moron is that thought that that was would have been the way to go you, you know like, like you know what we'll do we'll grade them and the people are doing poorly we'll give them really bad grades that should motivate them i i who who thinks that way the 90s like at least they could have rated you on like the popularity of nirvana songs like you know like if you if you had like an 85 you were like teen spirit but you know if you were more like 120 you were penny royalty and you know like somewhere in there like why not oh my god that's really terrible like, how have we come so far in 30 years, the way we think about things?
1: And, you know, I, I, I am grateful. You know, I don't um, hold anything against them, but I think that's where we were, you know, kind of fear, fear-based, um, you know, if you don't check your blood sugar, if you have a D on your A1C, you're going to experience all these complications. And so I love like a lot of doctors and psychologists are, you know, trying to, really focus on like, let's do evidence-based hope and and motivate people based on these, the other numbers of if you keep yourself in, um, you know, good range, or you exemplify or show these kind of behaviors, you are going to live longer with, you know, and I, I can't pull the numbers out right now. But have a higher chance of not having any complications as opposed to, well, if you don't, you are going to have complications, right? It, it, um,
0: is it possible that aspirational talk doesn't work on people whose blood sugars are elevated all the time or have incredible stress about like getting low or something like that? Is it, is it feel like a bridge too far to even hope?
1: I I think that's where you want to get the, get them to, right. but obviously in the beginning um, you might need to start smaller for example, okay. let's focus on, you know, the the behaviors, the process instead of the outcome. And if, if you're a parent working with a child or a teenager, you know, they catch them being good. You're you're praising the behavior of, oh my gosh, you know, thank you for checking your blood sugar and not asking what the number is. You know, thank you for, you know, bolusing. I know you um and I really like all your your pro tips about the pre-bolus and the timing of the bolus is so crucial. Yeah. Um, and so praising them for or helping them around that piece as opposed to what is your number now before we eat? What's your and um, the, just the hyper focus on the numbers has to shift if okay. you're trying to help somebody move away from that shame based thinking around your number and your A1C because yeah. that's where. Because that's where you, you do need to focus on, but at the same time, you need to take that piece away to help elevate a person's mood or distress.
0: I don't think about the numbers at all anymore. I think about, and I'll, listen, my daughter has a, a Dexcom CGM, so I'm lucky to be able to see a graph, right? Mm-hmm. But I just think about like stability and maintaining the stability. Um, to me, the rest of it doesn't matter. Carbs, you know, try to force the line up insulin tries to stop that it's it's kind of I I really I simplify it in my head just you know mm-hmm. uh, you know you see a blood sugar that's um, darting up you stop it just stop it uh, you, you know and once it's stopped if you if you've over addressed it then you know fix that without it going back up again and learn from your next mistake I think you know if you've overcorrected, don't spend a lot of time hand wringing and saying to yourself like, Oh, I've messed it up again. Like, you know, like just look and go, okay, well look, this time I tried one, one was too much. I'm going to try three quarters next time. I don't know, whatever, you know, and then you learn and build and learn and build. And before you know it, I just, I just saw a note today uh, in the, I have a private Facebook group for this podcast. And a woman said, I came in, I was really desirous to just have success right away. And I, I, almost just went right to the pro tips. She's like, but instead I just went back to the beginning of the podcast and I started listening over. She said she was like 40 episodes in and she's already has an incredible improvement in, in health and and her ability to manage blood sugars. And I, I said this to somebody privately the other day. I said, I know that the podcast has 400 episodes at this point. But the truth is, in my opinion, you go back, listen to this podcast straight through, you're gonna have an A1C in the low sixes and it's not gonna be tough to get to and that's because there are so many little things about diabetes that if you expect someone to sit in a doctor's office or in a you know or and tell you about it's not how it's going to happen like you have to hear it kind of slowly you have to hear it as a building narrative it takes a little time to take in the information and after that you know you're on your way like so i i like that you don't blame your doctors but i'm going to blame them for you a little bit you don't have to <laughs> We don't teach people how to manage their insulin. We just tell them they have diabetes and that carbs makes their blood sugar go up and insulin makes their blood sugar go down. And then we're like, good luck. And then they send them on their way. Mm -hmm. And then these little things that you're talking about naturally pop up in life. And by the way, you don't just have diabetes. You also have a job or you go to school. Mm -hmm. You might be in a marriage that you're not happy with. You might be in a marriage you're really happy with, but there's a hole in your roof that you can't afford to fix or any number of other obvious life things happen while you're trying to figure this thing out. I've said over and over and over again that I was able to come to these ideas partially because I was a stay-at-home dad and I didn't have to get up and go to work every day. Mm -hmm. You know, I, too many people are in that situation where it's basically they throw a patch on their diabetes and hope it holds till the next time they're able to look at it.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's just, it is a, it is, as they say, you know, the full-time job that doesn't take a break. I I know you reference that a lot. Mm. And I think it's. Upon all the other layers of life, it's exhausting, and I think one of the the greatest gifts you can give to yourself as a person with diabetes or a caregiver is to be kind. You know, you said don't don't wring your hands. Let yeah. let the numbers be data for information for decision making in the future, but not a data point to say, gosh, I was—I really was terrible. I can't believe I didn't give myself enough insulin or gosh, now I'm doing the the diabetes roller coaster where I, mm-hmm. I was high and then I overcorrected. Now I'm low. Gosh, you know, then you get in your headspace. You know what? I made a mistake um, and that's okay. And I'm going to learn from this and move forward um, as opposed to just ruminating in the number and the, the behavior that got you to that number.
0: And I think additionally, you have to have the the foresight to realize that you can't make a mistake if you don't know what you're doing. Uh You know what I mean? Like that's, that's an interesting concept because you feels like you made a mistake, but if no one taught you, are you making a mistake? Like, you you know what I mean? Like how can I make a mistake about something? I have no knowledge of whatsoever. The mistake is made in the entirety of how we do this, of how from the moment you're diagnosed until the moment someone lets you go. They tell you a lot of really important stuff and not, I mean, you brought it up a second ago and we kind of always just like skip over it, but I have contact with a lot of people. The idea of pre-bolusing, which is honestly the idea of understanding how insulin works, is not mentioned to most people when they leave with their insulin. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just it's fat. It'd be like tell It would be like if I gave you a driver's license and didn't tell you gas was flammable. You know, FYI. Like, you, you know, right, <laughs> right. You just got to the gas station like oh, it's leaking all over the place. No big deal. No one mentioned to me this was a problem. Like it just you need to understand how certain things work so that you can be um, thoughtful about using them. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. So you're making me upset. Oh, well,
1: you know I. <laughs> Thankfully, there has been such a huge shift um, and trend with, you know, the the American Diabetes Association has partnered with the American Psychological Association, ADA and APA, to recognize that there needs to be this focus on psychosocial care for Mm -hmm. people with diabetes, because the education piece that you are, you know, that you have done such a great job in um, broadcasting through your podcast is so crucial combined with the psychosocial piece. Um, and so I am grateful that there's been a big shift in, in care for not only endocrinologists, but psychologists focusing in on that, the emotional piece yeah. of what it's like that, you know, it's, it's exhausting is the understatement. Right.
0: Um, right. It just, it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. the tools you you have to have the right tools where you can't, you just can't you can't build your box if you don't have a hammer and that's that. And it's, it's not, it's not that much more difficult. And like you're saying, the other side of it is, is that while you feel like you're constantly failing and failing and failing, and you're not just failing, but your health is deteriorating and you're starting to feel worse and worse. Yet you don't notice it after a while. Uh All these things are just, you know, they feel insurmountable. And I think possibly, and I'm not just saying this because you're here. The only way most people, People are gonna be able to climb out of this hole is with third party help, somebody who can break it down for them and show it to them piece by piece and then give them direction about how to how to manage.
1: Well, yes. I mean, I think there is you do first to be you know aware of the the signs and symptoms. And actually, as I was um, preparing to come speak with you today, I found this website. It's called diabetesdistress.org. Mm-hmm. And the, you can actually take a, a survey to kind of assess your degree of distress. And it, it highlights, you know, don't worry if your numbers are higher, you know, trying to really prevent no, there's no shame around having distress, but to first like let's just try and go be aware of where you are in your level of distress. And then it gives some options of what what do you need? Do you need to talk with your healthcare provider, do you need to seek additional um, help with the mental health provider. Do you need to become more clear with your family of what you need? Do you need help in problem solving, or do you need just more validation from your family yeah. um, or your partner, wh- whoever's you know in your your immediate family support system? Um, I think understanding where you are is is the first step, and then kind of figuring out how can you help yourself through that process and being kind and compassionate to yourself is also really key.
0: Our, our, I think we should be deputizing uh, sharpest diabetes Sherpas. I've just come up with this idea while you're talking <laughs> because, because you just said stuff that I could imagine a new blockade for every time. We'll go to your doctor. What if my doctor sucks? You know, what if my doctor thinks a, a 7.8 A1C is great? Like, the, and I don't think that. Or you know, and it's easy too to say to somebody like, "Don't just see the number," but but everybody's not great in a panic situation. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, there's there's certain people who you know there could be you know bombs going off around them and they can stay focused on what they're doing. And there are certain people who hear the bombs and very reasonably jump on the ground and cover their head. So when when ev- when you can't count on everybody being so. Resilient in that moment, Mm -hmm. you know, like they need somebody to take their hand and go, "Hey, look, you're in over your head. No big deal." Like it's that old story, right? Like, uh, guy's down in the hole, his buddy walks by, yells up, "Hey, Bill, can you give me a hand? I'm stuck down in this hole." And Bill jumps down in the hole with him, and the guy goes, (laughs) "What are you doing?" Like now we're both stuck down here, and Bill goes, "No, don't worry. I've been down here before. I know the way out." Mm -hmm. Like you need somebody who who can lead you out, and and I think that. There's too many there are too many variables and and you're also counting on people to recognize which bucket they fit in and then they have to go to the right person. Like you just need somebody to stop, listen to your story, and say, Okay, here's what you need, my opinion. I'm gonna try to get you to it. And let me see if I can't lead you forward i you've, you've just given me a job for after the time when the podcast is over. I'm going to start diabetes sherping. And uh, I think this is, I think this is it because you don't need any special skills just to know the, the path that somebody else doesn't know and, and is too confused to find their way on at the, at, at the moment in their life that they find themselves in that situation.
1: Right. I yeah. mean, yes. Oftentimes, yes. Someone coming alongside them, helping them through the process and just validation that, you know, I, I understand that you are in such a challenging and difficult spot and, and, and also feeling like they're not alone. I think that's, um, you know, with particularly with type one, um, it's, you can feel very isolated that no one really understands the challenges, the nuances, the, you know, every thought um, every minute, you know, there's a different thought, probably about it, about your diabetes management. Um, I agree, and that can feel so isolating. And so, I think reaching out um, for help, just for the to know that you're not alone, is also a really crucial step.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Having some sort of community. I, I have to be honest that I've been sh- shocked over the last number of years when people write to me privately to tell me that this podcast is their community.
1: Like, mm-hmm, and even mm-hmm. though they
0: don't have a back and forth, it's not a it's not a two way conversation. It's still everything they needed was just knowing someone else existed and being able to listen to them. Uh, yes, yes, and
1: and not feeling like they're alone in the process. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's you know one of the the benefits of technology and your and your podcast and all the many resources that you can access online.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Okay, so Erica, so so somebody can come to this burnout phase, show up, find a therapist that understands diabetes and hopefully find their way through it. Will the therapist help them with management too, or no?
1: No. And that's, that's a great clarification. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, even though I have type one, um, you know, and I sometimes feel like I'm an expert, not always with my own management. I'm not the expert of everyone else's own personal management. And so I oftentimes will consult and collaborate with their um, health provider, with their doctor, with their endo, with their CDE. Um, and but I would not make decisions or suggestions around their insulin management or carb ratios. I would come alongside them and help them maybe figure out a behavior plan with either the caregiver or depending on the age of, of the person with diabetes um, and help support them in that way. And kind of finding what are, what are the um, roadblocks to implementing that behavior plan um, and also, just as we already talked about, just kind of the validation of of the challenges of living with diabetes. Gotcha.
0: You've never you've never leaned over the table, seen the graph, and been like, y- "You consider just upping your meal ratio a little bit there."
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> that would definitely be something. out of my scope uh, of, of competence and practice. So, yes, gotcha. that would not be appropriate. All
0: right. Well, good luck at you, you <laughs> principal person, you Erica. Uh, <laughs> so, so let's let. let this is something I'd, I'd like to dig into this next thing that I'm constantly um, uh, enamored by, which is I believe that when you're diagnosed with an illness that is not, um, it's not curable, that you go through the processes of grief. Am I right about that? G-Vogue Hypopen has no visible needle and is the first pre-mixed auto-injector of glucagon for very low blood sugar in adults and kids with diabetes, ages 2 and above. Not only is Gvoke Hypopen simple to administer, but it's simple to learn more about. All you have to do is go to gvokeglucagoncom forward slash juice box. G-Voke shouldn't be used in patients with insulinoma or pheochromocytoma. Visit gvokeglucagoncom slash risk. Are you ready to ditch the daily injections or send your pump packing? If you are, it's time to try Omnipod, the tubeless, wireless, continuous insulin management system. Here's all you have to do go to myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox. Scroll down a little bit and decide do you want to check your eligibility for a free trial or check your insurance coverage to see if you're covered? Maybe you're already sold and you just want an Omnipod. Just click on My Coverage. I want to check my coverage, then fill out a tiny bit of information, and you're on your way. Now, if you're just looking for the free no-obligation trial to be sent to you, check my eligibility for a free trial, fill out your information, and that Omnipod will show up right at your house so you can give it a whirl. It's just a demo pod. Don't worry. You put it on, you wear it, and you see what's up. And the questions are super easy. You know, my name, my date of birth, do I have type 1 or type 2 or, or another type of diabetes? And how do I currently manage? It's very simple. Only takes a moment to get that free no-obligation demo or to get started with the Omnipod at myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox. You want to learn more about Touched by Type 1? Check them out on Facebook or Instagram or at touchedbytype1.org. It's a wonderful organization helping people living with type 1 diabetes. type oneorg Myomnipod.com forward slash juice box. Gvokeglucagon.com forward slash juice box. Support the sponsors, support the show. You go through the processes of grief. Am I right about that?
1: Absolutely. And and I I probably see the majority of my clients um, and families are mostly the newly diagnosed who are dealing kind of with the shock, with the grief, kind of the um, the exploration of what does this really mean for our family? Mm-hmm. Um, it is, and it's, a, you know, it's a community that you don't really want to be a member of, but you're trying to figure out what, how, how is this going to affect our our daily lives? And, you know, some people Um, Like for for my, in my family, for instance, I actually also have a um, younger brother with type one coincidentally, which, and I have an older sister who does not, and no one else in my family, we have no history of um, type one diabetes. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had kind of that built in (laughs) community with my brother, which was um, unique, but a lot of families say, you know, we're going to, we're going to fight through this. We're not going to let this affect us at all. You can do all the things You want to do? We both played volleyball. He actually was—this is my little brag spot. He was um, an Olympic gold medalist playing volleyball in Beijing. Um, And so I just like to say that that you can do whatever you want to accomplish, to a you know within the 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 means of you managing it. Um, So there are some families on that kind of end of the spectrum, and then there are other families who um, are just really struggle, and it's understandable who you know, how do do we, how do I let my child go to school? Um, And how do I trust other people to manage this? This is, you know, thinking from a a younger um, aged person with diabetes, Mm -hmm. to a a teenager who wants to go out or wants to drive. um, And now is kind of tech, tasked with well you have to have your blood sugar in in a certain range before you get to go out with your friends or drive your car. Um so it is such a huge shift and obviously different with different layers and different complications based on the age. Yeah. But to answer your original question, no, yes, there is a huge sense of grief and loss around and sometimes it's just ambiguous loss like we don't we're not really sure what we're all all that we know, we don't, you don't really know, you know, everything initially. Um, And so there's a sense of like ambiguous loss and grief. Yeah.
0: Is is denial always first? Mm. Or not necessarily, I guess the the stage, by the way, I've also heard from some psychologists who say that they don't call it the stages of grief anymore. Like there's Uh other ways to think about it. There's some thought processes where there are seven stages, five stages, two stages. So keeping in mind there are different ways to think about it but i can tell you like right off the bat i know that i i i personally experienced denial and it 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 popped up around a honeymooning situation yes right as soon as you didn't need insulin as much or you know there was this this maybe 24 hours where my daughter just didn't seem to need insulin at all i'm sure she still did but i was such a neophyte at the time less seemed like none and i got i got caught up in it to the point where i called my friend who's my my kid's pediatrician and i was i was coherent enough to say to him i actually said hey i'm going to say something after i say it tell me i'm wrong and hang up the phone <laughs> you know i said but you know most people can't talk to their kids doctors that way but i happen he happens to be a very good friend of mine and so i said uh, i don't think Arden has diabetes she hasn't used that much insulin And Mm -hmm. he said, no, Scott, Arden definitely has type 1 diabetes. This could happen, you know, in the beginning. And he described honeymooning to me back then. But I was in such a state, I didn't even hear what he was saying. Mm
1: -hmm. I just
0: heard him say, stop hoping she doesn't have it, you know. Um, And that was pretty early on, in the first six months or so. Um, And I I wasn't out of my mind enough to just be thinking it all the time, but the minute that something concrete happened that opened up the possibility, I ran through that door mm-hmm. like right away. Um, everybody goes through that, do you think? Denial.
1: Oh, I, I would probably say. I mean, I can't say you know, give a fact on that, but I would say a lot of people probably would kind of when in, in your you're in shock, you're denial, you're kind of trying to figure out what does this mean? Then there's this honeymoon period, which can last, you know, different lengths of time for different people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think along with the denial, a lot of um, parents and, and my own included feel guilt or would rather say, can I, can I have this instead of my children? Or did I do anything to cause this? And so those are all really challenging feelings and thoughts to have. And so often, instead of kind of either expressing those or feeling those and moving through them, there is, there can be that denial. Um, but that's all part of, yeah, the, the stages of grief and shock. And, and, and like you said, it, the stages of grief are, are not linear. (laughs) They are cyclical. Um, and so you can experience any of those stages at any point in time or all of them, Um, like they can can overlap too. Yeah.
0: I'll tell you that, um, I've seen, I've talked to people who, when they get to anger, they go a lot of different ways. It's, um, Mm -hmm. you hear like, you know, I don't know how God could let this happen. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's one that I, that I hear pretty frequently. Some people go take their anger and direct it right into domination. Like we're going to, um, support somebody who's going to cure this. We're going to find some, you know, uh, I don't know, doctor who's working on something that you've never heard of before. Like that anger mm-hmm. gets or or I'm gonna keep my kid's blood sugar at 84 constantly and it's never gonna move. And and they direct I've seen them direct their anger at that as well. Um that could be exhausting though, no.
1: Oh, for sure. And and the anger could could also go to the, you know, the burnout of <laughs> um, I'm so over this. I'm so angry. I'm, I just don't want to think about it. Um, and so I'm going to just ignore it.
0: Okay. So Um, can the anger, like, can it, it could jump right to that where just, I'm so mad at this, I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist. You could also be driving so hard to make it perfect that you end up burning yourself out through that.
1: Yes, that that is, that that is an excellent point. Yeah. You can, you can experience burnout from the other of like, I'm, I'm going to just hyper focus on these numbers. I'm going to keep it in this perfect range. Yeah. You know, from eighty to one hundred and twenty, and keep it like a try to be a, a quote normal person, um, and that, as we know, is is fairly impossible to do on a twenty four hour, you know, twenty four seven basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you certainly can burn yourself out, particularly if you're the caregiver in that role, um, because then that that often leads to you know, if you're going to be perfect, that often leads to feelings of guilt and shame. You okay. know, like how did I let it get to be one twenty one? Yeah. Um, and so it is, it can be a very messy cycle of trying to live in this, if, if anger is driving that, trying to live in this perfect range. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I would encourage, you know, the the self-compassion piece to come in.
0: So do you, um, can you, I should have said, can you explain the bargaining step to me? Because it's, that's the one that doesn't make sense with how my brain works. Like I, mm-hmm. like I, I saw it happen. I feel like, I feel like bargaining covers, this is my fault because there are endo issues in my family, like by people mm. or there are the people who feel like if they would have gotten to a doctor sooner, there could have been something they could have done about it. Right. Um, you know, or it's my fault. I didn't see something um, like that. Is that all kind of falls under the bargaining portion?
1: Yes. And I think it's, it can happen, um, fairly, uh, it's common particularly, you know, with parents, like I said, you know, bargaining, like, why can I have this instead of my child? And I think it happens because we often, we really don't know the initial trigger right mm-hmm. to your pancreas, not working the way it's supposed to. Um, I think if we had a clear, um, you know, trigger, and a clear explanation as to why the bargaining and the the either the guilt um, wouldn't happen as much. I'm sure it would happen to a certain degree because you still don't want your child living with a chronic illness, um, but that the confusion around the the actual diagnosis of, of type one diabetes is still very much you know there. <laughs> yeah. And so we, we want it. We always want, we want to know why, like, how did something, how, why did this happen? How could I have prevented it? Could I have done anything differently? Did I, you know, did we use the wrong detergent? I mean, you know, you, I hear all sorts of things. Did Maybe it was because that my child broke their arm and their immune system was in shock, or maybe it was because my child had the flu. You know, we, We want to always figure out the why, and we don't. With really know why with this. Um, It's
0: funny. I don't care about the why. Like uh even even when I talk about blood sugars with people, I tell them one of the biggest mistakes you make is staring at a high blood sugar, wondering how it happened. Like I don't like I don't care how it happened. Just use some more insulin and get it down. Mm -hmm. And and so the Mm -hmm. bargaining the bargaining part didn't like to me bargaining is that it's your brain's last vestige, right, to keep it Mm -hmm. from feeling sad. Like, oh, yes. right, you're trying to you're trying to stop yourself from getting to the depression part to the to the grief part. And and so you keep trying to figure out a way where this doesn't have to feel sad. And there's no I don't there's no way not to feel sad about getting diabetes. Mm-hmm. Like it just it's not a great thing to find out that one part of your body stopped working. It isn't going to start working again. Mm-hmm. It sucks, it, you know, but, but I get why it happens. But I wonder if people listening can't hear what we're talking about right now and then go back to any number of other episodes and other people's stories that you hear and realize that all of their stories are just some version of the steps that you feel after something like this happens these stages yes um, you know what i mean
1: yes and and then you know getting to some people say you know the last stage of of grief is acceptance but right. as i you know want to highlight you can, you can accept the diagnosis for a period of time, but it's okay to go back to periods of feeling sad. You know, I, I love to tell the story. Um, I, I had a stint, I worked at the JDRF in San Francisco um, many, many years ago, and there were a lot of type ones on staff there. And there was one particular woman who had had it for over 50 years in great health. And she I think it was either once a month or a couple times a year, she would take a, I hate diabetes day. She would take, she would take the day off. She would lay in bed. She would, she would feel all the feelings. She would feel sad, angry, and then, and then move on. Mm-hmm. And so she kind of had this planned out to be like, you know what? I'm living with it. I'm, I'm living successfully with it. She had a very, you know, robust life but she still had these moments and created these moments for herself to feel sad and angry about it. And that was, that was her way of kind of coping. Um, And that's okay. So even she lived in kind of the, the, you know, majority of her life was the life of acceptance and thriving, but it's okay to go back to feel like, gosh, you know, we all have different seasons of life. And there are going to be more challenging ones with with your diabetes, um, particularly it. in as you're growing and going through different seasons of and, and hormones and, and different life stages and different stressors. So it's it's okay yeah. to have those different emotions R- around it.
0: So just because you got through the 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 depression and grief state and you got to acceptance and you started thinking, hey, you know what? It turns out. I figured out how to use my insulin and this sucks, but it's, you know, you know, everybody's, it's like it who's way better than this other thing that could have happened to me or, you know, whatever. So right. I'm feeling good about this now. I am I feel like I'm in a little more control of what's going on. And you start sort of just turning the corner. It doesn't mean that you can't remember one day that this sucks. It's, it's right, you, you don't right. just get to just dis- like, it's not the, f- so it's for people's understanding, like the five stages of grief, I think is like an older idea. There's mm-hmm. a seven stages grief uh, that that breaks things down a little differently and is way more hopeful at the end where you kind of um, you start putting things back together again. You're working through them. You, you you accept what's going on and you actually end up feeling very hopeful.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and,
0: and just because you feel hopeful today doesn't mean that something won't that, you know, that your pump won't fail while you're on, you know, A roller coaster at six flags and you you won't be like, oh, this is depressing. It's ruined my whole day. Like you can you're going to bounce in and out of these things as you go. And not just with diabetes, by the way, life in general. I don't know if people realize that we're all very basic like. Organisms, right? (laughs) Like we just we sort of do the same things over and over again. And when we reapply them to different ideas somehow we're like oh diabetes is sad well everything is sad at some point you, you know like i get depressed about things like everyone else does the, the the bigger issue ends up being for people who hit that depression pothole and for real physiological reasons can't actually get out of it ever like everybody gets depressed sometimes but most people are able to get through it the people who aren't they're now now they've now found a new another new issue that they need to deal with um
1: yes yes and i think that's it's important to note that you know when we're talking about diabetes distress mm-hmm. it's you might experience a certain level of of distress at certain points throughout your you know career with with diabetes and um that's okay i think the the important part is to be aware of when you feel like as you just were describing, you know, when distress becomes, you can, you can have diabetes distress and struggle with the elements of living with diabetes and not be depressed because maybe you're functioning in other areas of your life for your job, your, your family life, your friendships. Um, If you're an athlete, you know, it's, it can be different, but when it becomes when diabetes distress is prolonged and you aren't able to either recognize the symptoms or, reach out for help or have community around you um, that can, you know, it can transition into, you know, a full blown depression Mm -hmm. diagnosis. And I think that's, that's what we're trying to prevent, you know, before it kind of impacts and and impairs all of your levels um, of functioning.
0: Are there just some people who are predisposed and eventually they're going to have a turn in their life that is so impactful that they're going to become depressed? Like it, like that it's always going to happen
1: but uh, that's, that's a great question. And I feel mm-hmm. like it could be almost another, another episode. <laughs> I feel like, so you're asking like, are people, are people predisposed to having depressed thoughts or experiencing depression?
0: Yeah. The same idea with diabetes. Like if you have the markers, the genetic markers for type one diabetes, then your likelihood of getting it goes up. And if, uh, uh-huh. if this happens and that happens and everything just kind of goes wrong for you, boom, you have type one diabetes. There are other people who have those markers who never end up with type one. And so uh-huh. I'm assuming there are people who have markers for depression that they're unaware of. And then if they have life circumstances that push them in that direction that they're more likely to get caught in a real depression than other people are. Cause I've had some fairly terrible things happen to me in my life, mm-hmm. but I've never had long bouts of depression. Mm-hmm. And there are other people who have had things happen to them that, you know, are equal to mine or lesser or more who get stuck in it forever. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so my assumption is that. I don't know. Do you understand what my assumption is? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So okay.
1: I, yeah. Are you are you kind of more prone to either depressed thinking or experiencing depression because of certain genetic markers? Yes. I would say, um, yes, that that is certainly does exist. Um, but there's also the other components of life, like the. Your, um, your resiliency, your, your the people around you, the support that you have, I think, is really crucial. If you are experiencing, a, you know, a triggering event mm-hmm. that might lead to depressed thinking or symptoms or or a clinical depression, um, the the capacity for you to reach out for help. Um, now, are those all due to genetic markers? Maybe are those due to um, the fact that maybe your the community around you can support you or not. Um, there are a lot of different, I, I would say, factors around that. But I'd um, say yeah, it's, a, it's a both. It's yes, both and, <laughs> um, to answer your question.
0: Do you think that people, so people who maybe know in the past that they've had trouble or gotten stuck for longer times than maybe feels what they see normal around them, if something like this happens to them, Should they be running right to a therapist? Should they be should they literally like leave the hospital and and call the therapist and be like, hey, look, my kid was just diagnosed with type one diabetes. I got a feeling this isn't going to go well for me. Like, let's start now, because I've interviewed people who have like I just did an interview the other day that will be out in a little bit where, you know, this this woman describes an incredibly happy life. And then at one point she felt suicidal and said she had never felt that way ever. And it was after a a diagnosis for a child. Mm -hmm. And, and then, you know, just as you described, had a, had a spouse with her that was able to, you know, kind of keep her focused as this thing had hold of her. And it took a very long time for her to get through it. But she luckily had somebody with her in that moment. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, she could have been by herself. I, I just feel like, you know, what if she was a single parent or didn't have a lot of family around her like, like how do you how do you make that decision to get help when getting help seems like another failure
1: right right or just another problem um another problem, another yeah. thing to do, and maybe if you are in you know an extreme level experiencing extreme levels of depression, you know it's hard to to motivate to do anything yeah um And I think if, if we're talking about this within the scope of diabetes, I mean, hopefully because there has been such a shift um, and a trend in, in our um, medical health providers our healthcare providers to be more aware of the psychosocial symptoms for not only the person with diabetes, but also for the caregivers that they would be assessing, you know, both both parties um, at their level of, of their, their psychosocial care, their mental health. Um, and so my my hope would be that that would be the, the starting point, you know mm-hmm. whether you're you're coming in for your your checkup or you're bringing your child in for a checkup that they would be asking those questions um, and if not that you would be able to tell them you know how you're doing and your question is what if it becomes to a place where you, you feel like you can't reach out for help? Um, I mean, I think that's where if maybe reaching out for a mental health support is too much, maybe exploring insights like your, like your podcast, you know, realizing that I think depression likes to tell the person that they are alone in that and it becomes isolating and it feels really scary to be in that state of mind. Um, And so, recognizing that you're not alone in that, and if it just means listening to your podcast, if it means going on a different website, JDRF just had their um, their summit, and there's a lot of great resources on their website from their summit this um, over the summer.
0: Erica, what was wrong with the idea of listening to the podcast? What are you doing, driving people away? What are you doing? (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Wherever you can find help, I'm happy for you to find it. I was just teasing. Well, okay. So I know we're up on an hour. Do you have a little time beyond the hour if I drag you past it, or do you have a hard out?
1: Um, I have a, I have a little bit extra time. Yes.
0: Okay. So I have one more question. Just okay. a real simple thing, real quick. Um, is it true? I was told this at my daughter's diagnosis that the, um, that in America one in two marriages end in divorce, but when you have a critically or a, um, a chronically ill child, excuse me, it goes to two and three.
1: Well, I, I don't, I don't, I can't back that stuff, but, <laughs> but
0: is it more likely you're going to get divorced if your kid gets sick?
1: No, <laughs> gosh, I hope not. Um, no, but I think like any other major stressor, be it financial or, um, you know, job, job insecurity mm-hmm. that that's chronic, you know, um, any other chronic stressor in a marriage is, is a challenge, um. But I think the, the important piece is, and I think you mentioned this in, in one of your podcasts, that you know, if one parent is the sole caregiver for the, pers- for the child with diabetes, that that's, is going to lead to burnout and maybe some feelings of resentment, um, unless that's already established and you've communicated that and that's the way you all want it to be, right. um, which would be hard to believe, if that's, if, but if that's how your family setup works... Um, then that's great. But I think the communication piece is so key in understanding without a without assuming, okay, well, you know, mom's at home. So she's going to take care of, of Bobby or, or vice versa, like in your case. Yeah. Um, and so I think if, if there's the communication around that, that would help prevent issues of resentment, mm-hmm. um,
0: Oh, to, oh, it's yeah. real easy to be like, look, I'm doing everything and you're doing nothing. And, you know, because you because especially in the beginning, if you don't know what you're doing, it's already mind numbing. And then you start having that feeling like you're killing the person because you can't figure out how to use the insulin. That's mm-hmm. an added thing. Then you feel like you're alone and you're by yourself and no one's helping you. And then when your spouse acts like, oh, that's your job, you're like, oh wait a second, Uh, you know, like, um, I would love help. But it's also not reasonable. Like my wife and I came to the conclusion that it needed to be one of us. Because as we tried to pass it back and forth, we would just we found it impossible because we found ourselves having to, like, you know, recount everything that had happened for like the nine hours prior, like, okay, so for breakfast, you know, it's six o'clock at night, and you're telling someone who just got home from work. At breakfast, this happened, we use this much, and it happened, and, blah, 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 blah. and then at lunch, and then this, and then you feel like you have to, you feel like a nurse passing off to another nurse right, at the end of the right. shift, right? And so one day we were like, all right, look, I'm going to take care of it. We won't pass it back and forth because this wasn't working for us. Um, and so I don't feel any like bad feelings around the fact that it's it's more me than it is her, Um, Mm -hmm. but had it just happened that way, had she just like buried her head or like, you know, turned her back on me and started kicking at the ground, like she found something interesting while I was doing diabetes, I would have been angry, like quite clearly, you know?
1: Right. Uh, So yeah, you guys had that kind of predetermined role and responsibility set. And I think that's, that's key. You know, a lot of, a lot of, um, arguments or misunderstandings in just in marriages in general is without, you know, assuming things, feeling like someone's, someone has responsibility to do something when maybe it's a joint responsibility. So I think that's, that's great that you guys had that um, opportunity to have that conversation and yeah. in, in agreement.
0: Eric, right, I'm going to ask you to generalize, and then you're going to tell me you're not going to, but it's not going to stop me from asking <laughs> anyway, okay? I've realized you're too professional and you're on the ball. By the way, you must be really good at what you do because I talk in big word pictures and you remember my question and come back to it afterwards, which I find incredibly <laughs> impressive. And <laughs> I don't hear you making well, notes, thanks. so well done. Uh, but look at me, I'm just like, I'm so impressed by that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thanks.
0: But no, seriously. Uh but here here's my here's my statement that I'm going to ask you to agree with or or tell me that I'm wrong. Uh boys are boys and then they grow up and become men and then they marry people and then they're not as much help as the women. Just say it, right? Like like women are more generally speaking focused and uh familial and guys are more like I made money already let me get to my PlayStation, like that kind of, like, is that true? I know there are some men who aren't, I'm obviously one of those men who isn't like that. But for the most part, if we were just going to generalize, women are screwed, right? Go ahead, say it.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm I'm curious as to where where you're going with this. Um, I grew up
0: in a blue collar world where men did not get involved in family. mm -hmm. And then, and it all seems to be like this you know, um, quiet agreement that people come to in their marriages. I do this, he does that. He does this, Mm -hmm. I do that, blah, blah, blah. And it all kind of works out. And the the resentment is quiet, takes decades to build. But then when you bring in the diabetes real quick, everything gets jacked up. And now suddenly he's not just ignoring the fact that the Christmas decorations need to go back in the basement. He's ignoring the fact that your kid's blood sugar is 250. And now... And now what ends up happening is this goes from a thing that I find irritating because the house is a little bit of a mess or we haven't fixed the hole in the roof or something like that to we're killing our kid and you don't seem uh-huh. to care. And then yeah. I, it has been my, um, my experience and, and what I've witnessed from other people is that women appear to have a uh, a genetic component to them that once they give birth to a child, they care very much about that child and a lot less about everybody else who is not that child. So now you suddenly went from being like my boyfriend who became my husband to becoming this guy who doesn't care about this 250 blood sugar, and now you're a danger. And am I wrong about all that? Like, that's just how I see people.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I you're right. I'm not going to generalize. Cause I, I knew think, you wouldn't because like, like you're, you're, you're a professional. <laughs> 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 I mean, cause you know, look, look at you at case in point. I think there are families who create different structures for them within themselves. I think the issues that you are like the example that you just gave, um, occurs when there is not, there's no communication and that now they've gotten, they've just kind of, you know, the partners have not set in their ways, um, and for, for better or for worse. And then when a, when a major stressor occurs, mm-hmm. such as a diagnosis, um, the, the rhythms and routines can become um, uh, obviously troubling, but then, it, then it's exas- exacerbated because now we're talking about our child who um, it's, it feels life or death you know, to manage their diabetes care. Yeah. And so if there's already this built-in resentment that I'm doing, I'm doing X, but you're doing Y, but now you're not helping me with my child, with our child, mm-hmm. um, that creates obviously a major conflict. And so I would, I would encourage people to, you know, what, what you have modeled um, and just explained within your family system, every family system is different And while you know there there might be stereotypes of what the male or female or different partners do, Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't really matter when it comes down to your child who's living with diabetes um, to get really clear with who is doing what and what does that look like on a daily basis, Um, because if it's not clearly communicated and understood then that resentment and that burnout is going to happen for the caregiver. And then, and, 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 you know, who knows what's happening for the child with the diabetes.
0: Allow me now to argue the other side of it, um, because really, did I believe what I said or was I just painting a picture? OK, and now so here's <laughs> the next side of it, right? You can get into a situation where, hey, you, one person are in charge of the kids. You make decisions like this. I'm not involved. I haven't been involved in two years, three years, four years, five years. I feel out of the loop you seem to be doing such a good job with the diabetes. This is a scary thing. I don't know anything about it. I'm very afraid to mess it up. Mm -hmm. So I think that there can be a time where one of the spouses looks disengaged, but is really just frightened out of their mind, but doesn't have the extra problem of being the person with the kid. So they get to walk away from it. Whereas you are frightened out of your mind, but you're stuck there making the decision. So you figure something out, try it, it doesn't work, try something else, this works. Now you're going through trial and error on your side. The other person's not going through that. And because of that, they can feel more like, hey, maybe I should stay out of this. I think there are plenty of people who heard me say the first thing that I said and thought, yeah, that's right, my husband or wife is is an and they don't help me with this and blah, blah, blah. But I also think that that person could have heard it and thought, I just don't want to mess this up and it seems really important and I don't know what I'm doing. Uh I I think that there's a misunderstanding almost constantly between married people. Like, I think we mischaracterize each other almost constantly. Uh Do you think that's true? You talk to married people. Do people not really understand each other?
1: Well, I think... Um, Not, not consistently, but I think there are moments or events um, or going back to, you know, just any stressor that might challenge our, our understanding of one another of what the, you know, relationship looks like. Um, I think, you know, I'd be curious and, you know, I do, I have seen, um, couples who are, you know, we, I'm, I'm working with the, with the child with diabetes, but also the couple who are, are struggling with that dynamic of, well, you know, she takes care of the house and I, and I do the diabetes or vice versa, Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, whatever, whatever role is defined for each person. Um, but then there's that, the fear of, of not knowing or, um, Maybe the other person is feeling like the, the the partner's passive in the in the children's care, diabetes care. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it all it goes back to, OK, what are what is everyone feeling in the moment? Let's communicate around that. I mean, I'm curious if you do you have check in times with your wife? Like, does she want to to be more a part of the care? Well, or she better not you, lift her head up. She's making money. She's hmm? making
0: money, Erica. She better not lift her head up. I need her working. You understand? She's not allowed to look up. She's allowed to eat, use the bathroom twice, and work. That's it. That's her job. No, I'm just, no, we, 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 when, when life allows, we bump into each other and fill each other in. And that really ends up being how it goes. I I would love to tell you that I have a specific time for it, but that's not reasonable. You know, sometimes it's before bed, which, by the way, completely kills the idea of having sex when you're like, oh, the kids are having trouble with school and blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, oh, I'm going to go to bed now. And like (laughs) that or, you know, like, we'll stop. I have to be honest, because of COVID, we're around each other more often. We just Mm -hmm. had a conversation before I jumped on with you about something that. Would not have happened before. And I'm going to tell you from my experience, these little like pit stops are super important because Mm -hmm. once they get to build up, your conversations turn into this mishmash of like you blurting out a bunch of stuff you meant to say, her trying to respond, she blurting out a bunch of stuff she meant to say, you trying to respond. I've never seen one of those conversations go well in my life. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like you have to every once in a while stop and say, hey, did you see that this happened? Or that you know, college said that they're going to go back, but this that doesn't seem right. Maybe we should figure something else out. Just keep people thinking about things over time. Like they to me, it's just a constant conversation. Yes, um, and it still yes. doesn't always go great. It's just the best you can do. the The problem with managing a life is that you're trying to live one at the same time. Yes, there's two competing things happening in every second of your day.
1: Yes. And I think sometimes for the caregiver, you know, the caregiver just might need some validation too. I think it's important, just like we're asking, I would ask the person with diabetes to ask for what they need. Do they need some more problem solving or do they need some validation? I mean, those aren't the only two things you could be asking for, but those are kind of the main points. And just like, you know, apply those same ideas to the caregiver. Does the caregiver need some more problem solving around how to manage your child's diabetes or are they just wanting some validation of like, wow, it must be really hard to really monitor, you know, Bobby's blood sugars while also trying to do all the things you want to do for your own life. That must be really, really challenging. And yeah. thank you so much for doing that. I mean, I think like basic validation and gratitude goes a long way, Um but to be to ask for what you need as a caregiver and also for the person with diabetes if you're able.
0: And this goes for being married in general, right? Like because mm-hmm. I think that I think that overall people think there's two ways that marriages end. Either you just get sick of each other and you go your separate ways, or you give up and die. <laughs> and that's not those shouldn't be the two basically conceived endings of how marriage go. Uh, right. you know, and it I think there's a way to realize that there's you're shooting for a long time that there are going to be good days and bad days, good weeks and bad weeks, good months and bad months, good years and bad years. Like Mm -hmm. I, I, I once told my wife when we were first married, she's like, what's your expectation for all this? I said, well, listen, if we stay married our whole life, it'll end up being maybe about 40 years. If we're lucky. I think if we have, you know, 10 really great years and 10 okay years and five years that sucked and five years that weren't too bad, that'll probably be pretty good. <laughs> you, you know, like, like I mean, I think that a, a, a striving for perfection constantly is a bit of a fool's errand and it really just leaves you more let down than fulfilled. I think there's, yes. a, you know what I mean? Like everything can't be perfect all the time. Um, that's all. Exactly,
1: and yeah. it leads to the thinking of, you know, I'm, I'm not a good enough, you know, Parent, I'm not a good enough caregiver. I'm not a good enough partner or spouse, um, and so yes, the, the the validation, the gratitude, and the self compassion are are key. Yeah, <laughs> to kind of get through the long haul of, of of diabetes in the in the family system for sure.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, once you've heard my stories eight hundred thousand times, there's got to be something else that makes you go. I'd still be okay waking up tomorrow if he was here, and like the, you know, and <laughs> and I think what you just said is really important is that we're all just. I mean, listen. I can be completely honest. I need validation just like everybody else does. I know I'm doing a good job, but if the people I'm working so hard for don't appear to care, then what's the point of it? Uh You you know what I mean? And it can can feel like that at some point, like nobody seems to care. And I get that, you know, nobody's going to run around telling you I really appreciate my laundry being clean, You, you know, and I'm not looking for that. I'm not looking for someone to come up to me every five minutes. But there's a moment where, you know. Arden has Chinese food going into a donut and I don't let her blood sugar go over 110 where it would be cool if someone would look over and be like, God damn, you're good at that. And I'm like, yeah, Yeah, I'll
1: say that. I'll say that. That's really impressive. Erica, <laughs>
0: I'll put your A1C right in the fives. No trouble. You come over here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate you doing this. I, this conversation was everything I hoped it would be. And I'm hoping you might decide to come back on more than once because I think there's a lot more to talk about. And this was great.
1: Oh, wonderful. I would love to. Thank cool. you. I really, I really enjoyed it as well.
0: A huge thank you to one of today's sponsors, GVOKE Glucagon. Find out more about GVOKE Hypopen at gvokeglucagon.com forward slash juicebox. You spell that G V O K E G L com forward slash juicebox. Don't forget, you can get your free, no obligation demo of the Omnipod tubeless insulin pump at myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox. And learn more about Touched by Type 1 at touchedbytype1.org or on their Facebook or Instagram pages. If you're listening in a podcast app, please press subscribe. And if the show has been valuable to you, please share it with someone else. Have a great day. I'll be back very soon with another episode of the Juicebox podcast. You can learn more about Erica at EricaForsythe.com. E-R-I-K-A-F-O-R-S-Y-T-H dot com.